There's no one like you. You are awesome. You're everything. All things come from you and all things return to you. You're not like anything else that we know. And we're thankful that you've given us opportunity to know you and to grow in our knowledge of you. And we thank you for that. Our desire today, God, is that your kingdom, the kingdom um, that it must be just absolutely amazing in heaven, where um, everyone and everything completely entirely submits to you and flows in your presence. We just ask that today that would be more of a reality here with us on earth, that our hearts would be more submitted to you, that our minds would be more aware of you, and, uh, and, and that you would move in us in that way. God, give us everything that we need today in order to follow you. I know that you've blessed us with your son and you've blessed us with, with one another and you've blessed us with so much, God. And, and so today, God, would you please open our minds and open our hearts more to receive the fullness of your kingdom in our lives and in our church and in our land here, God. And the places where um, there are things within us that want to stand between that or where the enemy's deceived us or where we've kind of gone our own way, we ask that you forgive us of those things and that you would also, also God, um, allow us to release others from anything that, um, that there is with other people, that we'd just be able to release that and that we'd be able to look to you and honor you and any place where we'd be tempted to see anything but you right now, that, that you'd also, God, keep us from that distraction. And I ask that for all of us here, each one of us, that our eyes would just be fixed on you, that you would fix our eyes on you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, bread is a weird thing these days because people have gluten allergies or, uh, you know, the uh, celiac disease. Um, my wife's family really struggles with celiac disease. Fortunately, it skipped her so far. Um, and, uh, but that means that there's a lot of people who, who can't eat wheat the way, uh, used to be eaten, you know, and, um, there's also the whole like low carb thing about people not trying to eat too many carbs and, you know, bread has carbs. Here's the problem. Here's my confession today is I like bread. Um, and we get this bread from, uh, from Costco. That's this like organic something or other bread that we really, really like. And, um, we, in the morning, we usually have a piece of toast um, made from this bread. And what's happened is, is that, you know how Lent is the time where you, like, pull back from things and focus on, on Christ and be a part of the story? Well, <laughs> there's a little bit of counterproductive nature in that for me because one of the things that we're doing during Lent, Jen and I, is we're going to bed earlier, which is, uh, and, and also, like, after dinner, we usually would have like a snack or ice cream later on, and we, we did away with that, and we do some other things instead during that period of time. But what ends up happening is, is by the time I go to bed, I am like really looking forward to my piece of toast in the morning, like really looking forward to it. Um, and I am very hungry for, uh, for the, the carbs, the bread, whatever. Um, and uh, so Jesus in this passage says that he's the bread of life. And he tells us that he's the bread that came down from heaven. He's the bread that nourishes our soul. That he himself is the bread. We would think 
when you first read that passage, that that would be really comforting words to us because, I mean, when, you, when I think about how much I want that bread in the morning, and then I think like, well, if Jesus is that for me, that should be awesome. But the weirdest thing is, is and it's so odd when, you, when we read this scripture, is this is the biggest moment before the crucifixion of departure from Jesus. This is where he loses all his disciples. He loses, not all of them, but a, a large majority of his disciples, he loses because he says he's the bread of life. And I was thinking like, well, it shouldn't have been the shepherd or something. Because the shepherd, you know, he's got the, the hook and he's got the staff and he's prodding and he's nudging and he's saying, go here, go. Or shouldn't it have, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of other things. Like, I'm the only way, you know, anything like that. Could have, but it was the bread that made people say, what is wrong with you? We don't get this. And they left over bread. And I was like, come on, this is like, this is satisfaction, you know? It's, uh, it's what we're hungry for. It's really weird. And so we need to dig into the, to the text to figure out what took place there and how that happened. I know that um, this is actually something that the enemy still has, like, from the beginning of time, this is actually a place where the enemy has really tried to deceive us. It's been the original deception in many ways. Is he, you know, um, nourishment and how we receive nourishment was the whole thing, right? I mean, there was that fruit there and what we could and couldn't eat and what we wanted versus what God gave to us. That whole thing was the original struggle and it was the original deception. And, and the enemy used that thing to redefine for Adam and Eve who God is and how much he could be trusted. That's really what he brought into question. Can you trust God about the fact that you're not allowed to eat this and you should eat this? That was the, that was the question. And then it was also how they saw themselves. Maybe they could trust themselves to know better than God knew about what they should eat and what they shouldn't eat. And that whole thing, it's redefining who God is and who we are based on our desires for consumption. And, and that's really was the original thing. The enemy doesn't have, I mean, all he really has is deception. That's the only thing that he has to offer us is to deceive us. And so if God wants to nourish us, and he wants to give us what we need, then the enemy's play, of course, is to get us deceived about what it is that God said. And so um, here we are in this place where um, the enemy comes for, for three reasons here to, to steal. He wants to steal from us what truly belongs to us, which is all sorts of things. In Christ, we have so much. We have our nourishment. We have life. We have abundance, we have brothers and sisters, we have an inheritance in Christ. There's so much that he wants to give to us, but the enemy wants to steal all of it. He wants to steal the whole thing. The enemy wants to kill us, and that's not a, a metaphor. He literally wants to kill us. That's what uh, the enemy wants to do, um, and, he wants to, and he wants to destroy us. So he wants to kill what it is that God's doing in us. He wants to kill the beauty of God in us. He wants to destroy God's plan for our life. And all of that comes by deceiving us about what it is that we really need and who we can trust. And that's where this whole thing has always been um, the struggle. But Jesus, of course, he comes for a very different purpose. He says in John chapter 10, he says that he comes that we may have life and that we might have it to the full. And so if I'm going to live and I'm going to be healthy, it's going to be because I am nourished by Jesus, that I am nourished by God. 
And so uh, today, let's look at what it means in this passage, what it is that Jesus is talking about, and why this is such a difficulty. We're going to be in um, John chapter 6, um, and there's some backstory that we have to give about John chapter 6 in order to understand what's going on. There's two parts of this that I think are going to be really important to give us context. I would love to spend the whole sermon in the, in the backstory, actually, because there's so many gems in understanding what leads up to this passage. So what I'm going to do is just give a little bit of uh, information about backstory, but then I'm also going to ask that if this is something that you want to study, these are just leads. These are like, hey, here's a lead and here's a lead. Go study it in your own time, and it is awesome stuff. I had so much fun studying the backstory of this stuff and was blown away by the mystery of who God is in the Scripture. Um, so first of all, there's the backstory of the, God, of the Gospel of John and what has led up to chapter 6. Um, and secondarily, there's a backstory of the idea of bread in the Bible. You know, because this is how it works oftentimes contextually. What's going on in this passage and in this book? Where are we in the theme of the book? And then there's also the idea of any time a, a word like this is used, when he says, I am the bread, there should be like a Rolodex in our head that goes through the... Anybody remember what a Rolodex is? Yeah, yeah okay. Um, some people still use Rolodex in here, right? So, yeah, okay. So... Um, there's, a, there's a Rolodex in our head that just says, oh, bread, be bread. And it looks through the Bible and goes, and thinks about all the moments where there's bread in the Bible and what they mean, okay? Um, and so there's a couple amazing things about bread in the Bible that relate to this chapter, John chapter 6, okay? First of all, um, tell me, the Rolodex in your head. What are bread, what are like Old Testament bread stuff? Manna, big one. And then what's it? Yes, the temple bread. Thank you. They're the two big ones. So manna and the other one's called the show bread or the bread of his presence or literally translated, there's a reason why they don't translate it this way, is bread of the face. Because <laughs> everyone's going to be like, "What in the world does that mean?" You know. So it's bread of presence or um, or show bread, and show literally means showing God, showing His face. That's why it's translated show bread to show the face of God. How anybody remember how many loaves there were on the table of show bread? Twelve. Twelve. Okay. Dig into that one. Dig into that one uh, when it comes to this passage that we're going to be going after. That's one to go study. Study the table of showbread. Anybody know what sat alongside that was sprinkled on the bread and sat in canisters next to the bread? Frankincense. Dig into that one. Awesome stuff to learn. You know how much each one of those loaves of bread weighed? 13 and a half pounds. Each loaf of bread weighed 13 and a half pounds. That's a big baby. <laughs> so um, there's this there's this showbread. That showbread had had two purposes. Um, it was not only to reveal God, um, and and there's a, and if you dig in, you'll figure out how it reveals God. But it was also God's provision for us because it, um, at the end of the week, it sat out for a week. 
just in the open air, so I don't know how stale it got, but if it's a 13 and a half pound loaf of bread, probably when you crack it open, it's still good on the inside, I guess, or something. But then the priests ate that bread at the end of the week. 12, 13 and a half pounds loaves of bread. And they ate that bread in a holy place because it was a holy gift from God to them. So it was God's provision to them, and it was God's presence among them. There is so much there that relates to the New Testament understanding of bread. If you want to go and figure it out, go figure it out. It's awesome. It'll go miles if you go study it. Manna is the second one. Okay, and manna um, happens initially um, coming out from Passover. Um, was, the original Passover, of course, is when um, they break unleavened bread together. That's the original Passover. And so that's the other part of bread is this unleavened bread they have at the Passover meal. After the Passover meal, as they go out into the wilderness, then God begins to provide bread from heaven. Literally what Jesus calls himself in this passage is bread from heaven, manna. He calls himself the manna. Um, and which manna means what is it? It's also understood to be the bread from heaven. Now, in that provision, if you look again at how manna works in the Old Testament, what we'll realize is, is this happens in the moment when God is freeing his people from slavery and he's providing for them and giving food to them, but they're grumbling about the fact that they don't like what it is that he's giving. So he's taking them from bondage and giving them food from heaven, but they're not interested in receiving exactly what it is that he has, so they grumble. If you take that paradigm and then read John chapter 6, we understand just how close the, the Old Testament picture of Israel is compared to this New Testament picture in John chapter 6 and what's going on. Enormous parallels. Enormous parallels. So, and uh, I haven't even touched on those parallels, but it's a lot of fun to dig into them and to see uh, what it is that, um, that, God's, that Jesus is pulling on. Um, and uh, you're, yeah, so, um, man, I just want to keep going there, but I'm not going to. Um, the backstory of the Gospel of John is the other thing that leads us up to this passage. Okay, um, the Gospel of John up to this point, um, it's really set for us right in the beginning of the Gospel of John when, uh, how's the Gospel of John start? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word is God's truth, okay? This is God's truth, God's speech, God's communication, God's definition, and what he says is, is the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. They didn't receive him. Because men love darkness rather than light. So the light came into the darkness. So there's two things, two themes that John gives all throughout the Gospel of John. He talks about light and he talks about word. And then what he says is, is there, there are those of us who have eyes but cannot and have ears but cannot what can I not hear? The word. What can I not see? The light. So the light of Jesus comes, and I can't see him if I don't have eyes to see him. And the word of God comes, but I cannot hear it unless I have ears to hear it. So why does John the Baptist come at the beginning? 
He comes to bring us, to baptize us in repentance so that our hearts could be open, so that we could have faith to receive that, which we would not see and we would not hear unless we were in a place of brokenness. Because we wouldn't naturally see this because we're naturally depraved. And so we need God to cleanse us and forgive us and by his grace tune our ears and tune our eyes, the eyes of our heart, so that we can see the light and so that we can hear the word. That's the backstory. What ends up happening throughout the first five chapters is absolutely spectacular when it comes to watching Jesus go from place to place, down to Jerusalem. So he, goes, he, goes, uh, he deals with uh, John the Baptist, and there's wedding of Canaan. He goes down to Jerusalem. He deals with Nicodemus. He hits the Samaritan woman. He doesn't hit the Samaritan woman. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the most amazing moment, in my opinion, in the first few chapters of John, uh, without a doubt, is this moment with the Samaritan woman. Because he tells her things that he won't tell anyone. He won't tell anyone. Everyone begs for Jesus to define himself. And he won't do it. He won't give them the truth. And this woman is only trying to get rid of him. And he tells her the truth. Because he knows where an eye can see and where an ear can hear. And he finds one, and he speaks, and it changes the whole village. And it doesn't just change the village because it grows people to come after him. It changes the village like they actually repent, and their lives are transformed. It's an incredible story. And, uh, and it keeps going. After, after this, he heals the, the man at the pool, and, um, and this is a big problem because he did it on the Sabbath, and this is where we start to see the the Hebrew leaders get very upset with him. And it just says the Jews get very upset with him because he heals on the Sabbath. And so he has to start talking now and redefining for them what they've understood to be the word of God versus what actually is the word of God. And all of that leads up through chapter 5. And at chapter 5 is where he's saying, you have not trusted the one who God sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you'll find life, but the scriptures testify to me and I'm here, but you're not receiving me. That's all the context that leads up to this moment. And this is the moment here, John chapter 6, okay? And so we get to John chapter 6, opening line of John chapter 6. Now we're going to dig in, okay? There are the two backstories. Uh, the, the main text here is down in verse 25, but we have to hit a few things moving on the, on the front part of it in John chapter 6 in order for you to understand. So I'm going to actually... Uh, just touch on a couple things at, uh, um, in verse, verses 1 to 4 and then down in verse 14 and 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him. Following him is an interesting word. We, we talk about being a people following Christ. And it says there was a large crowd following him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So they see signs. What do signs do for us? They guide us. Yeah, they guide us. They tell us what's going on. They tell us where to go. They tell us what to be aware of. They guide us. So a sign is there to guide us. The whole point of God giving signs through Jesus was to guide us. They're seeing the signs and they're following Jesus, okay? Then he, uh, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This happens on the Passover. Big deal. 
What else does Jesus do on, a Passover, on the Passover like a year or two later here? Yes, so the Passover becomes the moment where he sits down with his, at the Last Supper right before uh, he, uh, he dies, and then, and then he gives himself. This is Passover. It's super important to realize that John, that this didn't happen by accident at Passover, and that John didn't note that just because it's an interesting fact. It's the context of the whole thing. It's the context. He's trying to free people from slavery in this passage. And this is how he's doing it. He's trying to provide for the people the way that God did in the Old Testament. Down, and so what happens now is the feeding of the 5,000 after that, okay? And so he provides bread all over the place, gives all sorts of bread to the people. And if you want to dig into this one, when it comes to the numbers of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 and how many loaves and fishes there were at each one and how many baskets were left over at each one, and then you follow those numbers across the scripture, particularly back to manna and all of those things in the showbread, God will blow your mind. You know, he just blow, he blows our minds with that stuff in the scripture. Um, but that's not our, our point today. Verse 14 after, this is after the feeding of the 5,000. When people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So they saw the sign, the guidepost, and they saw it and they said, oh, there he is. There's the one. We're following him because of the signs. And now look, he just provided bread from heaven for us. That is the sign. This has to be the one. And so how do they respond? Verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. Interesting. They saw the sign and they knew what should happen that this was the guy who was supposed to be the Messiah. So what were they going to do? They were going to force him against his will to become king. It, they weren't going to follow him now. <laughs> they were going to make him follow them by making him what they thought a Messiah should be. And Jesus, at that point, had to actually withdraw from them because what they wanted from him isn't what it is that they needed from him. And he was trying to provide something for them, but they couldn't receive it because they wanted it in the way they wanted it. And so because of that, he had to actually withdraw, and he disappeared. And he was where'd Jesus go? You know, where'd he go? And Jesus is very good at this. He's very good at, like, knowing the moment when things, all right, I'm helping, we're in a good spot, it's going well, but now all of a sudden, i got to disappear because I'm no longer being received the way God intended me to be received. And so I have to withdraw. And it's amazing how by force, they, they actually are going to make him be something. So it's not about trust anymore. It's not about them trusting the Messiah. It's about them saying, there is power here. This guy can make bread. This guy can heal sick. You know what this guy can do? He can free us from the oppression of the Romans. That's what he can do. And we're going to make this happen at this point. We're going to make this happen. Because what they were looking for in freedom 
was they were looking for freedom from their circumstances, their oppressive circumstances. Jesus did not come to free them from external oppressive circumstances. He came to free them from internal oppressive hearts and sin. And because they couldn't see that or receive that, he had to withdraw. Now, to our text. Verse 25. By the way, what happens is, is then the, he tells the disciples to go make it to the other side of the lake. Um, in the middle of the night, he goes walking over. They see him walking on water. This is the walking on the water passage. And they're totally scared, you know. And anyway, they get to the other side. The people who had stayed on the, other si- on the Tiberias side, they didn't know where Jesus went. So they're looking all over for him, but then they find boats, okay? And so they jump in the boats, and they go to the other side, to the Galilean side, to Capernaum. <clears throat> now, in verse 25, they found him on the other side of the sea, and they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, when did you come here? Does Jesus answer the question that they ask? Almost never does Jesus answer the question that we're asking. He hardly ever answers. Whatever question I ask Jesus, he almost never answers what it is that I'm asking him. Because almost every time, I'm asking the wrong question. And he's like, that's not what you need to know. This is what you need to know. Okay? He does, I mean, I don't know how many times I'm praying and I'm asking him a question. And it's like, he leads me totally somewhere else. And then I'm like, oh, I was asking the wrong question. You know? So here it is. He asks that. They ask, how'd you get here? Jesus ignores that question and answers them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Oh, so there was the guideposts and we're following Jesus and saying there's signs that he's the Messiah. So we're following the Messiah. We're following the Messiah. And then the Messiah gave us bread and we're like, we want more bread. <laughs> and so then they're like chasing him to the other side. And not only, and, and there, there's metaphor in that too. It's not just that they want bread. It's that they want things. And those things that they want, they want him to provide for them. They want freedom from Rome. They want to be healed with his power. And they want food for their bellies, literally. You know, and they want all of that. And so they're following him. And what he's saying is, you're no longer following the signs. Because the signs lead to me. But it's not that you're coming to learn from me or to submit to me or to trust me. What you're actually coming is to get something from me. You're trying to leverage my power to get what it is that you desire. And that's what's happening in this passage, okay? So um, that's then uh, verse 27. Then he warns them about that. And he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. How many of us are working for food that perishes? <laughs> I got two hands up. You know, there are, there are definitely moments where we work for food that perishes where my, my mind is focused on doing what it takes in order to get done what I need so that I can take care of the stuff that I think needs to be taken care of so that life can be what it is that I think life needs to be. And he's like, don't chase any of that. Don't work for that. Work for the stuff that can't be taken. Work for the stuff that cannot be taken away for eternal life. What does it mean for that, to, to work for those things? And he says right here, which the Son of Man will give to you. 
So he says, I will give to you food that doesn't perish. For on him, that's on Jesus, he's talking third person about himself, God the Father has set his seal. A seal is so much more important than just a guidepost, a sign. A sign's like, okay, this way, okay, this way. There's a seal on this man. So we don't have to follow a guidepost. We just have to follow this guy. There's a seal on him. The mark is on him. So they said to him, okay, so you're telling us we have to trust you. You're telling us we have to submit to you. We're telling, you're, te- you're telling us all that. And, and this is what he says. Um, they, then they say to him, we mu- oh, so what must we do then to be doing the works of God? So they realize he's putting it on them. We have to do something. And Jesus answered to them, Listen, this is so much the center of this passage. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. This is the work of God. What does it mean to work as God called us to work? What are we to labor in? What is it that we are to pursue? When God says, I want you to be doing this, children of God, what is it that we're supposed to say? All right, if I follow God, this is what I do. And what I do is to believe, to trust Jesus. When we say a people following Christ, it means I trust Jesus. I trust Jesus. You know, and this is the work of God. We trust God. So they say to him, and this is where I just like, this part is hilarious. It just gets really comical. So they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? This is like yesterday he fed the 5,000. And what's amazing is, as he said, you're here because you want bread in your belly. You're not here because you're following me. The work of God is actually to trust me. And they're like, well, if you want us to trust you, then you're going to have to give us a sign. This is, where, and it, this is where it gets comical. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see what they're saying? Well, if you're really the one who we're supposed to follow, then we need a sign. And what sign are they looking for? Bread from heaven which is exactly what Jesus said they were looking for. And he said, you need to trust me. And they're like, actually, we will trust you as long as you give us bread. And then Jesus says that he will give them bread. Jesus then said to to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Sounds just like the Samaritan woman, right? When he said, I have living water, that you'll never go thirsty again. And she's like, give me that water. And he does. How does he give it to her? By speaking truth into her life about where she's not trusting God. And how does she respond? By repenting. And when she does, she receives water and never goes thirsty again. Unfortunately, that's not the story with these people here. For the, so Jesus said to them, they say, give us, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, um, I, in order, just for the sake of time, I'm going to jump down to verse 41. They didn't like this. Sounds like Israel in the, in the wilderness when the manna came down. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And there it is. Remember, I was like, Bread's the thing that we're supposed to be so excited about. Like, he finally wants to nourish us and give us everything that we need in him. And yet when he says, I'm the bread of life, that's where the grumbling took place, right? And they're like, nope, nope. We want, give us this bread right here. (laughs) That bread isn't good enough for us. And of course, God would give them every ounce of physical bread that they ever need. And just so, so, so much more course they said is this not Jesus son of Joseph whose father and mother we know how does he now say I've come down from heaven Jesus answered them do not grumble among yourselves no one can come to me unless the fathers who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God down in verse 51 he says I am the living bread uh that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Okay, now I'm going to stop there because I got the rest of it I want to I come back to. Taking inventory here, seeing how much time I have. It's hard to see. The lights reflect hard off that clock. Kuro, thank you. Um, Is it okay to seek bread from Jesus? To seek bread from God? I mean, Jesus taught us how to pray. And he said, give us this day our... Yeah. So he's the only provider. I shouldn't be seeking bread from any other place, which is why he says, don't labor for the food that perishes. That means when I'm my own provider. He says, don't labor for that. Labor for the food that lasts for eternal life. He knows that, he knows that we have needs as a matter of fact, he tells in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, we hear all about, like, God knows your needs. He'll exceed meeting your needs. He'll give you far more than that. But the point was not that they couldn't seek bread. It's that you can't seek the bread from God without first submitting to the person of God. Because our true bread is his presence among us. The bread of the presence. The bread of the presence. The table of showbread. The bread of his presence. The altar table. And um, for these people, it was very difficult because they just had a really hard time getting their head wrapped around the fact that um, he might not fit their picture of what they thought they needed, that he might actually have authority to show them that they needed something different than they thought they needed. Following Jesus for all of us The difficult part about following Jesus is that we are very tempted day in and day out by the enemy 
to follow Jesus for what it is that we think he can offer us, but not follow him because he's God and we have to submit to him. And that life for us is found in submitting to him. See, the, so the work of God is to believe in the one who he sent, which means my life, the fullness of life, the abundant life, comes not from the things that I get from him, the change of my circumstances or whatever they are, that my life comes from understanding what it is that he's saying and fully submitting to that. And in that, he will lead me. And as I follow him, that's where life is in abundance. And so that's where my bread is. That's where, where my food is, is in trusting him. So I, I just think there's an important exercise for us to do right now, um, each one of us individually. And that's that, um, you know, in First John, we talked about a few months ago, that if we say that we do not have sin within us, we deceive ourselves. And we make God out to be a liar. Each one of us, there's a reason why we are called to pray every day, forgive us and lead us not into temptation because we still live in that place where we have desires that are inappropriate and where it's like, it's there. So can we just agree together in this room that none of us are righteous? No, not one. We are made righteous by the blood of the lamb, but in our state, we still have sin in our hearts and we are still depraved people who do not see clearly the light or hear the word cleanly, that we struggle to see and receive fully God as he is. We struggle because we have our own desires and we still kind of want to be managing what it is that we want. And because of that, we have a hard time hearing what it is that he wants and have a hard time trusting him. Can we agree about the fact that we all struggle with that? All of us. Yes? Can we? Okay. So given that, there's no pointing of fingers in this thing at one another in a passage like this. There's only us reaching to God. <laughs> you know, that's all there is in saying, we would much rather be the Samaritan woman than the people who reject the bread from heaven. So we need help here, Jesus. Okay, and that's where it puts us in. So what I, the exercise is that we have to ask ourselves, what is it that I desperately want from God? What is, if I have the power of God at my fingertips and I can access God and say, God, if you would just fix this in my life or in my home or in my family or in my church or in my workplace or in this relationship that I'm in or these circumstances or in my bank account, whatever the stuff is that I would say, God, I really want you to change this. Inevitably, the danger of that thing right there is that we will seek God for that rather than seeking him for what he thinks we need. And so each one of us, I just want us to take a minute, maybe 30 seconds, and ponder, what do I want to change in my life? And submit that to him and say, I'm not going to seek you for that. Instead, I'm going to seek you for what you want to change in my life. Okay? 30 seconds. It's you and God. Go.
You've heard these. You've seen these things that we've brought to you. God, begin to disassemble their place of competition in our lives. The places where they can keep us from receiving the Messiah as you really are. The deepest Savior for us. God, please free us from the deepest bondage that we have. Not just circumstantial bondage, but from the deepest bondage that we have. And bring us into the full glorious inheritance of the children of God. <clears throat> I'm not quite done yet. Um, there's a few more things we need to talk about here and, and um, that are, are a result of this that I think are extremely helpful and that we would, we would lose if I didn't, I didn't finish this. So I'm going to hit just a couple other things here. It's amazing what happens when our eyes turn to Jesus. And, and you know this feeling that when we get lost in who he is, whatever the circumstantial things are, really fade. That's that, you know, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I have a hard time getting to Christ sometimes because of the conflict and the tensions and the worries of my heart. And there's this awesome verse in Psalm 94 that says, when the, when the uh, worries of my heart are many, you provide consolation. And what that means is, is that when my eyes turn to Christ, when I look at him, all of a sudden those other things fall into line and they just seem to, the power of the worry, the power of the concern, the power of the distraction, it gets disempowered. He, he sweeps out from underneath of it the legs of those things. It's not that they're not there. It's not that we don't see the discrepancy or the difficulty. It's just that it stops having its power because the power of God's presence, the bread of his presence in my life is everything. And then I'm like, I have my provision. I have my provision. I have God. And the other things are undercut. And, and, of course, the difficulty for us is, is that the enemy is always at work trying to get us to work for the wrong thing and trying to get us to see the wrong thing. And that's why we can't serve God in money because money is the other way to get our needs provided for, right? And so he, he gets us to think money, and he, and he gets us to think about the physical stuff, like the bread, the needs, the concern, the health, the, all, all of those things, instead of focusing directly on Jesus, and when we're not focusing on him, we get worried with all these other things. I think um, right now, uh, this is probably our biggest struggle in America. And let me explain what I mean by this. I don't think, as far as I can tell, there hasn't been a time in the history of this earth where anyone has had more access to food, to physical food, yes, to shady maple, Yes, you know, like I don't know if there's ever been a time where we have had more easy, instant access to food in the history of the earth, and yet somehow we're still hungry. We're still unsatisfied. It was a number of years ago that they were saying obesity was taking over for smoking as the number one cause of death in America. That our health was being more negatively affected by our eating habits than it was by smoking. That it was becoming, that was becoming a bigger deal. Because of the abundance of food. And food was given as a gift to us. It was given as our provision. You know, 
But the, the problem is, is that when we have had this much access but haven't known how to deal with our consumption appropriately, we struggle. We really, really struggle. But the biggest problem in America is not the fact that we have too much access to physical food and that we don't know what to do with it. It's the fact that more than ever in the entire history of humanity, we have never had so much access to spiritual food as we do right now. It is everywhere. There are libraries and libraries and libraries of all the church fathers. There is, if you search the internet, you can find the best preaching in the world at your fingertips with a podcast or a video. You tune in the radio. It's everywhere. It is amazing. There are Bibles laying all over the place, and they're on our phones, and there is just an abundance of spiritual food everywhere. There is no lack of food. It is everywhere. And somehow we're still hungry. Reminds me of, I think it's in Amos, where it says that that young men will wander from sea to sea as if it was a famine of God's word. And in the midst of abundance, we still feel like there's a famine for God's word among us. I just want to suggest that it's not because there isn't food. It's because we don't have ears to hear. It's not because there isn't light. It's because we don't have eyes to see. This is our problem in America right now. God is not absent. He's here. We just don't easily see him, and we don't easily hear him. There's a couple reasons for that. When we labor for our own self, instead of laboring for love, we get hungry for the wrong things. And when I labor for love, God, it changes things. There's this, there's this amazing thing that Jesus, this is, the, this is the big flip here in the message. There's two big flips here, okay? One is you got to turn back to chapter 4, this Samaritan woman's story. It's so important. After the whole initial encounter with the Samaritan woman, Jesus, of course, does this while the, while the disciples aren't with him. Because there's no, like, can you imagine him trying to talk to this woman with his disciples there? That would have been really hard. But he could go and have the freedom because it was a thing they wouldn't understand. So he just did it. Do you remember where the disciples were? They were going to get food. Right. Okay. So they were going to get food. Of course. So Jesus in verse 26 finishes his, state, his time with this woman saying, it says, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he, meaning the Messiah. This is where he reveals his identity to her in a way that no one else is getting it. Right after that, the disciples sneak back in, okay? Just then, his disciples came back. And it's amazing how this Samaritan woman who was living in deep sin was able to receive the knowledge that these guys are still struggling to hold on to. Just then, the disciples came back and marveled that he was talking with a woman But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into her town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. And remember what he told her. 
was all the bad things she ever did, <laughs> right? And she's responding positively to this because she's, she's saying, could this be the Christ? He might be able to fix the bad stuff inside of me. Their conf- her confessional heart was like, I need that stuff fixed. And he might be the one who could fix it. And so she's responding to his love and his leadership by receiving his leadership. They went out of the town and were coming toward him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You hungry? Are we hungry? If we are hungry, then we are sent to do the will of the Lord. And as we do the will of the Lord, we will be filled. When Jesus says that he's the bread from heaven, it doesn't mean that he gives us everything our bellies deserves. It means that he will show us what we need to do. And as we trust him, believe him, submit to him, we will find our souls satisfied. And he goes on to show them exactly how this works for them. Verse 35, do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. You know what he's saying to the disciples right here? He's saying, I'm not hungry at all. If you had just seen what happened with this woman, you would know That I'm not hungry, I'm satisfied because I saw my father showing love to a broken person and caring for her. I am satisfied. I just drank deeply. I ate the food of my father's will and it tastes so good. And I'm sending you to love and to labor in love. And as you do, you too will be satisfied. Flipping back to John chapter 6, he says the work of God is to believe in the one who he sent. What is it that God is calling us to in love? And I would urge us to not assume we know the answer to that question. The danger here is to assume that we know what God wants us to do without actually asking him. Because we will not read the Bible with ears to hear and eyes to see unless we, with our hearts, follow Jesus. And Jesus is not a historical person. He's a living God. And if I ask him, what do you want me to do? He will tell me what he wants me to do. But when I ask, I have to ask with faith, believing that he will tell me and trusting that I will follow him no matter what it is. And in that work, as I follow him, 
what seems like a spiritual hunger that seems like it needs more food in the shady maple smorgasbord of spiritual food around us. The thing is that we need is to do what it is that God's calling us to do because we are dealing with spiritual gluttony where there is an abundance of spiritual food but a lack of spiritual work. And when we work for ourselves, then we try to satisfy and bring rest to our souls by the means that we think we need instead of resting in the presence of God. But when we work with God, then we find joy and fulfillment in God's presence in our life. I had a a guy from the soup kitchen uh, um, who was just out of homelessness. He was, you know, he was just a step out of homelessness. Very, very poor guy. And we were doing everything we could to kind of to help this guy out. And one day he calls me like in the middle of the night. It was like, it was like a dead panic. And I was like, what's going on? Are you okay? And I thought he was going to be in big trouble. He's like, they turned off my cable. I need 80 bucks to get my cable back on. Can your church provide the money? careful of our disgust. Let's pray. What father, when a son asks for bread, is going to give him a stone instead? But what father will give his kid potato chips when he's been sitting on the couch doing nothing? My favorite thing from you here, Jesus, is not just that we are called to follow you, but that you say that your bread is your flesh and that you give us your blood to drink. And you provide for us, not just by guiding us and leading us and telling us what to do, but you give us provision when we come to you broken like the Samaritan woman. And we say, we know, we know we haven't followed you. And you say, it's okay, because I am broken for you. And I am shed for you. Now eat this body. Drink this blood. For the forgiveness of sins for the transformation. God, I just come to you right now. I just come to you right now, God. We struggle. I struggle to not desire you for what it is that I want from you, but rather to desire you because you're my king, my creator, my leader, my God. And I know that in my heart, I still struggle to not make you my own pet God. Instead of saying, What do you want? Who are you? Where are you guiding? And even when I hear from you, I know there's times where I fall flat on my face and I don't follow you and my heart doesn't submit and I still hold on to things I shouldn't and I still don't do things that I should and all of those things like Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. But you say, This bread from heaven, your body broken, your blood shed. I ask Jesus that on behalf of Parker Ford Church as a whole, that God, we would come to the table of your presence, the altar table. And that God, we would come to you and say, we have not sought you entirely. And we want you to lead us, God. 
We want you to lead us. And if that means pointing out things to us like you did to the Samaritan woman, please cleanse us. Please cleanse us. If it means that I've sought that thing in my life that wasn't going to actually give me rest or nourishment, please heal us. If it means that I've been drinking that stuff that, that is like, this is what I thought was living water, this is what I thought was the fruitful vine, and I've been chasing after it, God, please heal us. If I'm expecting others to do something for me instead of me thinking about what I can do for others, oh God, please forgive us and heal us. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. For you are good and there is no other. We thank you for who you are. In the name of Jesus, amen. Go in peace. God bless you.